Good afternoon and welcome to Woods and Water, South Carolina. It's a great day in South Carolina. It's a great day every day in South Carolina. As long as it's not raining, right? <laughs> hey, you, you know, you know what made my day or made my week? There, uh, if you were at the Bassmaster Classic last year on Hartwell, and I believe we did this on Sunday morning. It was Championship Sunday. We did this. Um, a friend of mine who owns Venture Aviation out at Greenville Downtown Airport, uh, David Knobloch, his wife Lori is the one who <laughs> who kind of pinned me in a corner about this show when I was starting it back in 2014. Uh, David's a pilot, a big pilot. I mean, you know, corporate biz jets. I mean, the, he does it all. But he bought a Stearman. PT-17, I think it's a 1946 model, blue, yellow wings, big, you know, the, the the old star emblem on the wings and all. And it's got a smoke system. So last year when the Classic was coming to town, <clears throat> excuse me, I said, you know, I said, it'd be really cool to to do something over Lake Hartwell with it steering. So just kind of under the radar, we didn't tell Bass about this at all, under the radar kind of. Talked to Dave and said, hey, let's do this. He goes, man, he says, it's going to be tough. He says, that's before the time change, and and we need to be on site at like 7.20 or something, and the sun doesn't come up. It's going to be tight getting the airplane from Greenville to Anderson that morning, pick you up at the Anderson Airport. and But we made it work. It was it was, it was was iffy. We were sitting there looking at the clock going, okay, he left Greenville. He just left How did he leave Greenville? It's pitch black out here, you know, because he didn't have lights on the plane. Uh, so anyway, the um, – we did all that. We ended up, we were 40 seconds late coming over the landing on, on Championship Sunday. And there were a few pictures taken. I haven't seen a whole lot of them. We did have to let Bass know because we had to get the drones out of the way. We didn't want to come over Green Pond Landing and smack into a drone. But uh, one of my friends, Neil Paul from Visit Anderson, was down at Bass headquarters in Birmingham, Alabama. And in the, on, in the hallway at Bass headquarters is a picture of the launch you know the ramp to launch all the boats and us coming across it smoke on that's just that just just this job is fun if you call it a job having something like that is just icing on the cake just cool that was fun should have been inverted though but we didn't have parachutes so <laughs> we were right side up uh <laughs> that just made my week and month and everything else what what is free range parenting you know we grew up with free range parenting we left the house in the morning after chores were done. And, you know, as long as you're back by dinner time, everything was cool because, you, you know, you just roamed. Well, in South Carolina, I thought that was hilarious because I, I get I get tons of this stuff about benefits to outdoors. Kids need to be outside and all this. And I just thought this was interesting. What is free-range parenting? New South Carolina bill could change the way you raise your kids. You ready for this? Parents in South Carolina can get in trouble with the law if they leave their kids in a parked car or let them play in a park by themselves. But a new law in the state Senate wants to change that, clarifying the rules to say kids who are old enough and mature enough don't always have to have adult supervision. I won't say we were mature enough. I mean, how mature is it to ride your bike down the road with no hands on the handlebars? You know, mature, nah, but, you know, if it hurt enough when you crashed, you probably wouldn't do it again, although we did. But... <laughs> But this is interesting. Utah made national headlines when lawmakers approved its free-range parenting law last year. New York Times reported the Utah law, like the proposal for South Carolina, says kids who are mature enough can walk to school or a park or wait in a car while parents run errands, according to the Times. 
The bill up for debate in Columbia would change the state's child abuse and neglect standards, clarifying the rules for law enforcement and the State Department of Social Services, according to the Free Times. This is not saying you treat your child badly, Vince Sheehan, Democrat candidate, told the newspaper, but allowing some freedom for your children before they're adults is not neglect. Can't believe I'm agreeing with him. Sheehan, who introduced the bill, said parents can use common sense to give children more freedom and independence, according to the Free Times. Clearly, you shouldn't leave a kid in a car that's 100 degrees, but if your kid is 12 and you run into the store and it's 50 or 60 degrees outside, I mean, my parents did that, <laughs> didn't they all? The change to the law states, child abuse and neglect or harm does not occur if the parent, guardian, or other person responsible for the child's welfare permits the child whose basic needs are met and who is of sufficient age and maturity to avoid harm or unreasonable risk of harm to engage in independent activities. These activities include walking to school, nearby store or park, playing outside, waiting in a car, staying home alone. <laughs> oh, God. This is great. I mean, you know, I laugh at it and all, but uh, it's true. Utah is the only state to pass a free-range parenting law that, a similar bill was introduced in Arkansas, but not passed the state house in 2017. There is a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, helicopter parents. You know, we've moved on from helicopter parents to something else. I forget what the new one is. But it's the truth. Kids need they need that they need the freedom. They need a little bit of independence, a little accountability before you turn them loose. You know, with a car at 16. It's just, it's a fact. Anyway, I think it's a pretty thing, pretty good thing. But what do I know? Uh, calendar for this week brought to you by Visit Anderson Green Pond Landing and Event Center. Uh, big game dinner, uh, the second annual big game dinner, Saturday, February the second, five thirty p.m. Andrews Church of God in Andrews, South Carolina. Sponsored men of sponsored by Men of War Men's Ministry Department. Guest speaker is Phil Thompson, International Director for Men and Women of Action. Of course, they're going to have all sorts of food. You can guarantee you that. So, Andrew, South Carolina, if you're around that area, it's something for you to go to. The same day, February the 2nd, 2019, in Chester County, they're having the NWTF Chapters Hunting Heritage Banquet at 6 o'clock at the Gateway Conference Center in Richburg, South Carolina. More information on this can be had at the National Wild Turkey Federation website. Or you can probably go on Facebook and look for Chester County Hunting Heritage Banquet. Anyway, the easiest place to do is go to the National Wild Turkey Federation. I think it's get involved or events, pick a event in your state, and from there. For those photographers out there, this is a pretty fun one. The Harry Hampton Memorial Wildlife Fund Photo Contest. The deadline is February the 15th. So you've got, what, about two, three weeks to go? To get your entry in, photos of all ages, photographers of all ages and skill levels are welcome to enter a total of two images in the contest. Resolution size is addressed. Um, prints will not be accepted, only digital images. Five o'clock, February 15th, you got to have them all in. But uh, they do say here you can't manipulate too much um, because it could disqualify you. Now, what too much is, I don't have a clue. But it does say entries exhibiting excessive use of content manipulation, such as composite images or other image manipulations, including but not limited to colorizing or use of digital effects may be disqualified. I guess that's the HDR filter filter on your iPhone. Um, you're going to have a gallery at the um, top 100 
Pictures will be chosen by judges. Winning images will be printed and mounted by South Carolina Wildlife Magazine and displayed at the Palmer Sportsman Classic March 22nd to 24th at the fairgrounds. Um, it was something. A lot of these are used on social media by South Carolina Wildlife as the picture of the day. Submissions that maybe didn't win uh, are up there. And you see them, they're great pictures. So anyway... How to enter. You need to send an email to photocontest at dnr.s. Siri just popped up here. Siri, go away. My Siri is Australian. My kids change it, and I don't know how to change it back. So sorry about that, Siri. I don't. And, and my phone was just laying there. I did not touch my phone. She's very sensitive these days. <laughs> she thinks I'm talking to her. She must be lonely. Uh, send an email to photocontest at dnr.sc.gov. With the following required information, photographer's name, complete mailing address, email address, photo description, photo location, and the category you wish to enter. There are four categories, wildlife, birds, recreation, scenic landscapes. They're going to have awards for first, second, third place in each category and one Harry Hampton Best of Show Award. And you do give up your rights to the picture once you've submitted it. So for your photographers, there you go. All right, hang on through the break. We're going we're gonna to talk a little Steve Ranella, meat eater. And um, then we got Michael Hook at the bottom of the hour talk about habitat. So hang on. More Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side of the break. I currently have put Siri in timeout. I have no idea. She just wanted to be a part of the show. <laughs> Everybody's welcome. Hey, even if you're asking, what do you want me to do? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, uh, if you have not heard, there, there's one guest that I've had on the show one time. And, and you know, I met him at a National Deer Alliance conference on CWD. I think it was a, actually a joint uh Quality Deer Management Association National Deer Alliance meeting in Louisville, Kentucky, and I talked to him that evening. Just a great guy, even if he is from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, one of my best friends is from the UP, We've been friends ever since high school. So I kind of know how to talk to him. We struck up a conversation. He's, he was on the show one time. Steve Ranella is his name. He is the uh, the guy behind Meat Eater, and there was an article published in the Federalist that uh, the anti Democrats were. I mean, the anti-Second Amendment folks, Peter Chernin, in fact, were going to take over Meat Eater. That it was all over, that it was going to be, you know, just a, a liberal think tank from here on out. And Steve came through and uh, had a rebuttal. I emailed him. and didn't expect to hear fact from him because he's so busy. Uh, but he came out with a six-minute, 40-second response, which I think is great. It's straightforward. If you're a Meat Eater guy, this ought to put you on at ease. If you don't know about Meat Eater, maybe you need to look into it because he is he's a great guy, Steve Ranella. So let's listen to his response and uh, and and just just listen. It's good. This is Steven Ranella from Meat Eater. Considering the business I'm in, I half expect to wake up every day to learn that I'm under attack for my celebration of hunting, either from the radical left who are concerned about my promotion of firearms ownership through the positive portrayal of hunters on my TV show or podcast 
or from elements of the animal rights movement who are disgusted by the fact that I not only choose to kill my own dinner, but provide information and insight to help others do the same thing. So I was pretty surprised to find out this week that the exact opposite is happening and that me and my company, Meat Eater Inc., are being attacked from the right. The gist is that Meat Eater, quote, sold out to the Chernin Group, an investment group that was founded by Peter Chernin. Mr. Chernin has taken some stands on gun control issues that are concerning to our audience, and they're worried that our content or viewpoints will somehow be manipulated in ways that are damaging to the interests of gun owners and hunters. First off, Meat Eater hasn't been sold. From its inception as a television show in 2010, I owned Meat Eater as a joint venture with 0.0 Production, a New York-based company that has now produced over 100 episodes of our show. Last year, I took on the investment from TCG without taking anything off the table in order to expand Meat Eater in meaningful ways that would allow us to produce more content in the hunting, fishing, conservation, and culinary spaces and to continue inspiring thousands of new hunters to equip themselves and take to the field. The Chernin Group is a for-profit concern. Their investment model allows companies to build their own teams and operate autonomously. Mr. Chernin has a long career, both operating and owning media and editorial outlets. It's worth noting that these include Fox News and Barstool Sports, where he hasn't even remotely inserted personal opinion. While I may disagree with some of Mr. Chernin's personal views on policy issues, if you're looking for an apology from me for making this move, you're not going to get it. I retain full creative control of Meat Eater, Inc., and three of our five board seats are held by me, my longtime creative partner at 0.0, and our CEO, outdoor business veteran Kevin Sloan, who successfully ran the apparel company Sitka Gear for many years. I have spent my entire career working with people in the media space who have no or little familiarity with our lifestyle, and it's a point of pride of mine that I have worked successfully with them to put out the content and messaging that I want to put out. If we're going to protect the future of hunting and the shooting sports, we need to grow them beyond the same base that we currently have. We don't need all of them to become participants, but we do need to maintain a majority who understand our culture and support it. Today, media is the way that you make that happen, and doing it requires leveraging that industry to tell stories and share perspectives that resonate. I've done that through work with everything ranging from the New York Times to Travel Channel. Without this approach, you're leaving the messaging around hunting and guns to those who traffic only in bogus stereotypes and campaigns of misinformation that put us in a position where we can only be defensive and reactionary. Now, I obviously care about these accusations enough to collect my thoughts here and present them in a carefully worded way. So don't think for a moment that I'm unfazed by this. I support the Second Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is deeply important to me, and it's non-negotiable. I've been a proud and responsible gun owner for my entire life. I'm bringing my kids up in the same way. I have never supported or endorsed any bans on classifications of guns or limits on ammunition possession or any other attempts to infringe on our constitutional liberties. As a hunter, I might choose a different suite of tools for hunting than you would choose for yourself. My choice of rifle shouldn't be taken as condemnation of yours, and your choice shouldn't be dictated by what I choose. I have friends and colleagues who hunt with ARs, and I'll rib those guys with the same affection that I rib my buddies who hunt with long bows. The sensitivities around this issue are getting out of control, in my view, as the snowflake culture expands into unexpected spaces. With that said, I'm also unapologetically in favor of an open exchange of ideas on any and all subjects that impact hunters and anglers. 
I have interviewed and showcased a wide array of voices from across the political spectrum. There have been plenty of conservatives in there, as well as some liberals. I take that as another point of pride. The only politician to ever come on Meat Eater, the TV show, is Governor Matt Mead, a Republican from Wyoming, a man who I respect and admire a great deal. He's also been on the Meat Eater podcast. Besides Governor Mead, the only other politicians to come on the Meat Eater podcast were Senator Martin Heinrich, a Democrat, and Congressman Rob Bishop, a Republican. Heinrich's an avid hunter. Bishop is not. Trust me, this balance is not accidental, nor is it accidental that less than 1% of our TV shows and only around 2% of our podcast episodes feature a politician at all. You're not going to see that ratio change. But I am warning you that if I do have a politician on the show, there is a chance that it's going to be a Democrat who hunts and owns guns. If we share those interests, I'm sure going to engage with them. If you think we're going to be better off when that party is dominated by socialist vegans with who we have no interactions or common ground, you better spend some time figuring out a better way to think. Regardless of what I say here, I know that some number of Meat Eater fans out there are going to tune us out from now on. That's disappointing, but I accept it. I'm confident, though, that Meat Eater will continue to expand its audience by staying true to the fact that we love the outdoors, regarded as sacred, and believe that interactive relationships with the natural world enhance all of our lives. Those are ideas that I believe in promoting, and I'll talk about them with anyone who cares to listen, regardless of their background or biases. And the way that I talk about it is no mystery. I've written six books and dozens upon dozens of articles, filmed seven seasons of a TV show, and recorded over 150 podcast episodes. Our podcast network, which includes Ben O'Brien's The Hunting Collective, puts out multiple shows a week, dozens of social media posts a week, and nearly endless stream of written and video content. Please, go dig into as much of it as you'd like. What you're going to find is a company who values wildlife, hunting, and the freedom of expression. We would happily take a bullet for any of those things. And nothing and no one is going to change that. I think the explanation was fairly self-explanatory. It's it's a partnership. You know, he's expanding. Uh, April Vokey's on there doing some fly fishing stuff. He's still doing the Mediator podcast. Uh, I don't think... I guess you have to take him at his word. And, and knowing Steve Ranella, as much as I do, I think you can pretty much rely on it. It, if it did one thing, I, in seventeen, I think we were trying. I'm trying to think where I was. I was on the road going somewhere, and uh, towards the end of, of seventeen, and uh, I wanted to get him back on the show. And we were talking. I called him on the road. And we were talking, and he said, "Man, he says I am just so busy." He said, "I'm doing podcasts and traveling." He said, "I just don't know how much time I've got." He said. Can we can we visit this? Let me get through this hunt visit. And I just, you know, he's a busy guy, and I'm just a one guy, a little radio show here in South Carolina. So I didn't push it. I from time to time I email him, he'll respond. You know, I just ask him a question or a comment on something he's done on one of the podcasts or one of the shows, and so we kept up relationship. Well, I emailed him about the original article. I said, just just help me out here, and that was on a Friday last Friday, Saturday I believe this came out. January 17th, was that five days ago, seven days ago? Yeah, yeah. So it came out on the Friday. No, the, the article came out on Friday, the uh, the 17th, and his response came out a day or two later. And Sunday I was, Sunday afternoon I was home, and my email, boop, and 
it was Steve Ranella. And he said, well, I could read the email too if I had it up. Anyway, he said, uh, he said, I'm sorry. I wanted to respond to you. He said, but I didn't have my own thoughts together yet. And, and I said, no, no problem. I, I got the response and it's just what I expected from you. And I said, you know, if you want to waste 15 minutes of your life anytime in the future, let me know. We'll, uh, we'll do something else. And he goes, absolutely. He said, man, I'd love to come back on the show. And uh, he says, as long as we don't have to talk about this. And I said, well, hey, it's, you know, whatever you want to talk about. So it is, um, it's going to be fun. We're going to have Steve Ranella back on. We're working, uh, we're tossing around a couple ideas of what we want to do. I don't want to do the same old thing, you know, asking some questions and having him respond with whatever's the latest and greatest or whatever. So we're working on something a little different for his, his next visit to the show, but that's going to be fun. So keep your heads up for that one. I'll, uh, I'll be sure to give, you know, plenty of time so you can, uh, so you can get <laughs> clear your Saturday afternoon to listen to that one. Cause that is, he is just a great guy and you, you hear it in his voice. I mean, he is just passionate about the outdoors. And so we're going to do some fun stuff with that one sometime here in the next few weeks. I also got Dr. Grant Woods. If you, if you haven't been keeping up with this, you know, we have CWD that popped up in Tennessee, CWD that popped up in Alabama. And it's one of those things that, you know, the more you look, the more you find. Well, they've had mandatory testing in Tennessee since December the 29th, and they've discovered an additional 62 confirmed cases of CWD in, uh, you know, less than a month. So not, not good. Uh, Grant and I talked about that one. He's going to come on. He's not a, you know, he's not a, uh, he's not a scientist. He's a, he's a habitat manager. He'll tell you that first off, but he, he knows so much and he, he talks about it so well. So Grant's going to come on. Going to have Steve Rennell on. It's going to be, and I'm already having to reschedule things in February and March and it's just bizarre. Hey, look, if you're into kayaking and canoeing, and you're always looking for a good map. Blue Way Mapping by Upstate Forever. They're available. They're waterproof. They got them for the Chaga River, the Packlet and Lawson's Fork Blue Way, Tiger River Blue Way, the Upper Saluda River Blue Way, the Upper Saluda River Blue Way. Map number two. They got two maps of that one. Uh, the Broad River Blue Way, 12 Mile River, Henry River Blue Way. And you can find them all at gopaddlesc.com. Always be prepared to have a map. All right, look, got Michael Hook from DNR. We're going to talk about quail habitat, Bob White Quail Initiative, a whole bunch of other stuff. Hang on for more woods and water on the other side of the break. He's teasing us with summertime stuff now, Jimmy Buffett. You don't play that stuff in January. <laughs> Gets everybody all torn up. <laughs> oh, man. Well, welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. It is, uh, there's always a lot, lot going on. I, I can't make half the stuff I want to make. But uh, at times when I do make stuff, make events and, and seminars and all, a lot of times it's outdoors. A lot of times it involves bird dogs. Uh, Bob White Quail, which is near and dear to my heart, and Habitat. And it seems like one of the guys I always run into these things is Michael Hook. Uh, uh, Michael, how, how does that happen? <laughs> just, we must just run in the same circle. <laughs> it's a good circle if you ask me. But um, Michael Hook, who is the small game program leader with the Department of Natural Resources, is with us on Woods and Water. And uh, we're going to hit on a, a few topics. Um, 
including the the, the announcement that uh, DNR came at, out with a few weeks back that they're now in a partnership with U.S. Forest Service South Carolina Forestry on a ten-year conservation plan. Tell us a little bit about that one, Michael. Yeah, we were we were really excited about that. Um, the this is sort of a long time in the making, really. Sure. Um, we've been we've been wanting to help out the Forest Service. Um, the, the issue is we've we've got a quail focal area right. over in the Newberry Newberry County area, okay. and and it takes a long time uh, for those federal guys to get through the red tape and paperwork and all that to to get some forest management done. So just okay. simple things like adding for. Uh, fire breaks, cutting timber, all that, it takes them a while to do. Okay. Uh, it, it does not take the DNR quite as long because we don't have to jump through as many hoops. Sure. So there's a process where we can become good neighbors to the uh, the, to the Forest Service. And so we signed a, 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 a joint agreement with us and Forest Service and Forestry Commission to become, uh, and it's really called the Good Neighbor Authority. <laughs> and uh, so, like I say, you know, it, it, it allows us to get more quail habitat on the ground okay it allows the forest service to get work done faster um and like i say the birds benefit because hey all of a sudden they've got new places to range sure sure yeah well well, let me ask you this then uh what back uh, a couple months ago we met up a bunch of us met up down in whitmire y'all put on a, a field day we went around and toured a couple of private pieces of property where they were doing some habitat management, mostly timber cutting and and um, and getting it ready for, for good quail habitat. And then we visited one of those focal points. Uh, it, and it was great habitat from what we were seeing there, which was a lot of open uh, grass, you know, with some mature, right. mature pine trees mixed in it. That's right. Sort of a pine savanna. Yeah, a pine savanna. Is that the end result? Is that where we're going with this? Is hoping to get more of that in the national forest? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. That that area, the Indian Creek um, area, right around the Whitmire office. Right. Um, that was sort of designated as a national bobwhite conservation initiative uh, quail focal area, and the idea is, is exactly that to create some connectivity between those already established you know, areas that look like what you're describing, that, right. that mm-hmm. open pine land, right. and, and try to create more connectivity, try to create more habitat, and, um, yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll get, get that accomplished through this good neighbor authority. Because, like I say, um, you know, they've got a lot of trees marked over there that's been marked for a couple of years, and, okay. and it just, like I say, it just takes time to get them on the ground. So we're trying to speed that up a little bit and that's where the forestry commission comes in they can come in and take those logs out for the u.s forest service in a more timely manner that's correct like i say you know they'll most likely subcontracted out to other folks but yeah i mean it's that's they're they're in the same boat that we are that our our processes are a little less tenuous (laughs) it's not near as much paperwork right Um, sure and and so we can we can I mean for example we can just have a, a six month or a twelve month um, timber contract and and you know we'll have those trees hitting the ground fairly quickly. Okay. Um, so yeah. And and this is going to happen on all of our national forest land, whether it's Sumter and Francis Marion. This encompasses At- all. 
Well, it, it was 630. I think they added, what, a couple of hundred thousand or down along the France Marion. So it's a little, probably around 700,000 acres now. Of, um, That's pretty, yeah. Yeah. You know, because, and, you know, we've got, in my shop where we're dealing with quail, you know, we work on the uh, Sumter there around Henry. We work right. on um, over in the uh, Lick Fork area around Edgefield and okay. McCormick. Right. Uh, we also are working down on the uh, Francis Marion. We started uh, working with the uh, biologists down there. The Price's Landing area, we're hoping to, to do some of this quail work as well. So, nice. Um, yeah, and that's probably a five or 6,000 acre tract that we're looking at down there. So, okay. yeah, but no, it, it's, yeah, it's statewide. Um, and theoretically, we could do it on the Andrew Pickens up in the, the mountains. And that might would help our little grouse yeah. up there. So. Hey. Now, there, there's an unintended consequence when you manage for small game. You, you manage for everything. Well, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, Everybody benefits. That's it. You know, it's uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of deer hunters that go through a lot of trouble every year. I mean, I'm, we're already in the planning stages. You know, okay, we're going to – we need to – back this edge up a little bit i need to i need to straighten this line out so i can get corn in there and, and soybeans and and whatever else and we do it for the deer but man the benefits to all small game and even birds i noticed because i plant sunflower oh absolutely and, and boy i tell you when those sunflowers get get uh ready to go you got bees buzzing around there you got butterflies buzzing around there you got the yellow finches are everywhere i mean it's amazing what happens when you manage not just for deer but you manage with deer in mind but it man it, it just the the exponential benefits to the wildlife is is immeasurable oh absolutely absolutely there's there's a good article that i think the missouri uh qdma put out it was written by craig harper and it talked about managing fallow fields for deer <laughs> and i mean it was it was really solely focused on deer but the way they were going about it was like I say, letting the areas grow fallow, doing some winter disking, doing a little bit of prescribed burning, and you were creating that rough area. Well, they were creating quail habitat. Sure. They were creating rabbit habitat. They were creating um, bee habitat, butterfly yeah. habitat, and, and it, it is. It's it's amazing. Everything uses that early successional species or that early successional habitat, and like I say it, it really does benefit across the. Uh, across the whole ecosystem, you, you know, in our monitoring, we we monitor six other bird species along with the bobwhite. That's right, you do. They, tell tell us those. They, tell us which ones those are, because it's it's kind of funny. Some of the names. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got the brown-headed nuthatch. There you go. Um, the indigo bunting. <laughs> no, excuse me. Blue grosbeak. Okay. Um, eastern meadowlark. Yep. Fields field sparrow. Um, one more, <laughs> and I don't uh, know it. Bachman sparrow. Bachman sparrow. That's it. Yep, yep. Because <clears throat> all those habitats, if you find one of those in a habitat, you're going to find the others. They they all like the same thing. That that's correct. And and you know those the the nine game birds tend to show up a little bit quicker. So when you do this work, they're usually the first ones in okay. there. You know, it takes all the right. quail a little bit longer to get in, but I mean, usually you can see a bump in their populations fairly immediately. Okay. And you can look at their population graph over the last 80 years, and, I mean, you can lay it over the, the bobwhites, and it's almost identical. They've exhibited the same decline over the last 80 years that bobwhites have, and it's all related to habitat, but 
Yeah. But like I say, I mean, they're usually the first to respond. When you when you go in, open up here, create some grasslands, some savanna or what have you, they they're there. They 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 respond quickly. You know, probably so, four of those species, four of the five that you named other than the quail, probably nobody knows about or, or keeps track of it. As a kid growing up in South Carolina, meadowlarks, they were everywhere. I mean, in the wintertime at our place in the country, I mean, there were just flocks of them flying around. You know, we had broom oh, yeah. straw fields. Uh, and, open and cow pastures. Open cow pastures. And, boy, I tell you, when the quail started to decline, the meadowlarks went away. I, I, bet it's been, I bet it's been close to 10, 15 years since I've seen a meadowlark. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it's it, it, like I say, they've they've exhibited a lot of the same same problems. Right? Logger headed trikes, the same thing. I mean, you know, these birds they're they're using those same habitats that the quail are using, and once they once that habitat disappears, all the they birds disappear. Yeah. But yeah, well, you hit on something there that that we talked about that we want to talk about a little bit. That's prescribed burning, and we got you know we got about three minutes to go or so. Um, okay. you know, a lot of people, boy, you talk about burning as I've got a friend who, who, uh, lives in California and his wife, we, we started a big bonfire one day and sent her a picture and she about had a cow because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, you don't do that in California, but here in the Southeast fire is probably one of the best tools. Can I, can I go so far as to say best tools for creating that open Savannah type habitat? Yeah, I, I would I would be right there along next to you saying that. Um, you know, it's it's certainly one of the cheapest ways to achieve that effect. Um, it's one of the easiest. Uh, you know, there's there's obviously some considerations to be taken. You know, with fire, anytime you mess with fire, it can sure. be dangerous. Sure. But uh, you know, yeah, I, it's it's the cheapest. It's the easiest. You can you can really make a difference on your landscape with just a little bit of fire, and and most often. You're 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 working your landscape with that fire at a time when you're not busy doing something else. It's yeah. not the middle of spring planting, or it's it's not the middle of deer season, or you know what have you. It's it's it, it's the downtime, and it's you know it's 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 pretty enjoyable work. Too. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like I say it's it's fun to get out there with some of your buddies and 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 and, and get some fire going, and, and like I say it's. Know you're doing a lot for the environment, but like I say, it's, it's fun work. What, uh, real quick here, what kind of, what are you looking for when you're looking to control burn? I mean, we got pine trees, so we're looking at burning sections of pine trees and stuff like that. Is that mainly what you're going to be working with in South Carolina, or can you do that with hardwoods too? You can do it with hardwoods, um, absolutely. I've got a working with landowner right now that's trying to create an oak savanna, and, uh, he, so far he's been fairly successful. Um, you know, you can do some patch burning in fields of native warm season grasses and, and create some really cool, um, habitats for quail. I mean, there's, there's a diversity of species out in these old fields that you just don't think about. You, you look in an old cow pasture and go, gosh, you know, that's, that's a lot of fescue and you'll see a piece of broom straw here and there. And lo and behold, when you start burning it, it's just amazing what pops up. All the wildflowers and all. I mean, it, that fire just exposes a lot of seed for one, but it also scarifies seed. And, and like I say, some of that seed's just laying there dormant, waiting, waiting for that interaction. And boy, when it when it goes through, it it takes off. But but yeah, I mean, pine savannas are where everybody thinks about it. But 
there's there's room to be burned in oak savannas and out in the fields and yeah, like I say, the, the key to it is is doing small blocks. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I, I tell landowners, you know, you think about your quail when you're doing this work. You know, always have a place for them to to go. You know, you want to do it close. Sure, sure. So you, right. you don't want to burn up their house. All right. Well, let's take a break because we've got a couple more things we want to talk about. More with uh, Michael Hook and Woods and Water South on the other side. to Woods and Water, South Carolina. I got Michael Hook from the Department of Natural Resources with us. And we're talking a little habitat, a little quail. Uh, touched on the new partnership that we've got with the Forestry Commission, U.S. Forest Service, trying to create some more habitat. And uh, prescribed burning, you know, now, now's the time, right, Michael? It's the springtime of the year. Humidity levels are just right. You're not in that nesting breeding season. Uh, where does somebody go? I mean, I know where to go because I got a forester. Where does somebody go to get adv- <laughs> to get advice about prescribed burning, and and who do they turn to? Uh, the, the Forester Commission is the go to place. Okay. Um, you know, they they have what they call stewardship foresters spread out across the state, and they're 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 there just to help landowners navigate. You know, any kind of forestry question or, okay. or burning question or what have you, and. Um, they are a fantastic resource. Um, to get information specifically on, on prescribed fire, they actually have a really good class that I would suggest anybody to take. If they're, they're interested in lighting a fire, go okay. take that class. Uh, it's a, it's a, just a one day class. It does cost a couple dollars. Okay. Um, but it, but it's a really good class. And if you complete five burns afterwards, you're, you're a certified prescribed fire manager and that, that that affords you a little bit of um, liability insurance. There, they they they'll, they'll they're basically saying, "Hey, we'll stand behind you. You're you're certified, and, and should something happen, you you've got a little more more weight behind you. They they're they're willing to to go out on a limb for you." So, like I say, it's an excellent course, and I would I would certainly recommend it. That I believe that is what Rick Counts has taken. I, that day down at Whitmire, Rick and I kind of rode together, and he was talking about a course he's taken. And he had two little burns under his belt and had three more to go. So I think that's exactly what he was doing. That That's correct. That's it. That, that would be it, yep. Okay. All right. It is, uh, you know, you are probably one of the main pillars of the South Carolina Bob White Quail um, initiative. It's something we, you and I have talked about before, dating back to the the bird dog revival over on uh, – over on the other side of seventy seven, mm-hmm. way back what twenty sixteen or so, or fifteen maybe. Uh, that's that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What uh, what's the latest? I know I know you uh, you probably done your your whistle counts now, and yep. fall whistle counts. How how are things looking across the state, or at least in the managed Believe areas it? you've got? Well, it, statewide, it's really looking up. Um, our whistle counts this year were were some of the best we've seen. Um, and it, 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 these whistle counts are, are 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 basically routes that we have biologists across the state running their their. Um, they stop every half mile, listen for birds for 
eight minutes, and okay. they hear birds, they write them down, and they're listening for that male Bob White call. Right. Um, so we've been doing this, the whistle count, uh, since 1979. Um, we had never had three-year increase in, in numbers since we started that until oh, wow. this year. So, like I say, we, we sort of bottomed out in 2015, but the last three years we've been – been slowly increasing, and okay. I'm going to take that as a very positive. You know, <laughs> when you've got whatever thirty years of decline, sure. it's, it's nice to see a little increase. Sure, yeah. Um, we, we had some routes. For example, um, there, there's a route over on Fort Jackson. They had their highest count since 1991, um, and, and you know, the 90s were sort of my heyday for, for okay. quail hunting. I, okay. I, I compare everything to the 90s. You know, <laughs> My, my predecessor, Brett Carmichael, he compares everything to the late 70s and early 80s. Well, see, that's me. That was the golden age. Yeah, that, that yeah. was me, the golden age of bird hunting as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so I'm still comparing everything to the 90s. So when we get in those counts back in the 90s, I'm like, man, that's awesome. You know, we had <laughs> we had several routes, like the MACB, um WMA. Right. They had their, one of their highest counts ever. Uh, it was highest in 10 years. I, the Web Center, one of their routes, they, it was the highest since 1991. Um, you know, it's, and, and, you know, the Web Center, for example, they're doing a lot of work. They, okay. you know, I know why those, those are going up. You okay. know, the Fort Jackson, they're doing some work. They're doing a lot of, um, red cockaded woodpecker work. So that makes sense. But there's also routes all over the, the county, like over in Orangeburg, we've seen an increase, and okay. and that's just on public roads out in the middle of nowhere. But part of it's, you know, all this timber that was planted in the late nineties, it's coming to an age where we're starting to do some thinning and okay. clear cutting and all. So statewide, we're hearing more birds, uh, uh, you know, across the landscape. You know, we certainly hear them where we're doing a lot of work. Right. Uh, we're certainly hearing them on our quail focal areas, but as a general rule across the state, we're we're really hearing. Um, pretty good bird numbers um and you know everybody thinks about those that bob white call in the summertime that you know bob white but <laughs> yes. they also make another call in the fall and it, it's just a fall covey call count and it's okay. sort of a just a cheaping little noise it, right. it, it doesn't sound like much but that call is probably more important to us biologists because that's a pretty good indicator of what you got on the landscape okay going into quail season okay. so okay. we we monitor eight or ten places and um in the fall we, so we know what's like for example like mac, mac b or web center bono fair indian creek we know wh- how many cubbies we got a pretty good idea what we're looking okay. at so um you know we had the second highest count at mac this year on the fall covey count um you know the delta wma which is a a new WMA over in Union County. It's like I say, brand new. It went from zero uh, two or three years ago to eight cubbies this year. Okay, and, you know that's and that's creating quail habitat out of uh, fescue pasture. Okay, so yeah, it's pretty cool. But, um, but yeah, so like I say, overall we're we're looking better than we were three or four years ago. Yeah, if you're a bird hunter, you hate pine trees and fescue. <laughs> that's, until, that's until you can burn a fescue out and plant something else or thin the pine trees then then you like it a little that, better yeah that's right that's right <laughs> well speaking of we got we got about three minutes here um speaking of i got my invitation to go to the the quail management seminar down at web centers the 30th one y'all put on uh it, i haven't been in a long time what what 
what's going to happen during those two days down at the web center? Well, it, it's it's for land managers, it's for foresters, it's for wildlife professionals. It's it's a two day course on how to manage for quail. Um, you know, and I'm, I won't say that just hunters won't gain a lot of insight on quail and quail right. biology and quail habitats, but you know, it's 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 more geared for folks doing work for quail. Okay. Um, but it's it's part classroom, part field work. Um, you get to you get to go down and stay in the the web lodge, um, and, and that's to me that's well worth the trip. <laughs> that is worth the drive the, down there, <laughs> just to see the the, the, the grounds, the, yep. the lodge, and, and have some of that food. Yep. Um, yeah, like I say, but you get to do all that. But you, yep. you sit in the classroom. They go cover topics, you know, agri- how to manage agriculture for quail, or how to manage your forestry for quail. Um, you know, just basic quail biology. Um, and then we go do some hands-on stuff out in the field. Like I say, we show them what winter discing looks like. Okay. Um, you know, we, we actually, if the weather will permit, uh, we do a little small prescribed fire. Um, you know, just try to get a little bit of hands-on work. So, but yeah, it, like I say, usually we try to limit it to about 30 people. Okay. Um, and it, it generally feels, fills up pretty quick. So, um, we actually just put out the, uh, the invite this week. So if you're, you're interested, just give me a shout. Um, we'll, we'll get you signed up. Um, it's going to be March 7th and 8th of this year. Yep. So. Yeah. Good time of the good time of the year to be down there before the bugs come out while it's still pleasant. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh man, Michael. Well I appreciate you doing this for me. Um I enjoy it. I am sure it we'll is. do this again. Hey, well, I was about to say, as you well know, I, I enjoy talking <laughs> birds and bird dogs. So Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing it and we'll I'm sure we'll see each other in the field sometime and, and next time something comes up we'll get back together and talk about it. Sounds like a plan. Thank Talk you, Michael. You later. Yes, sir. Bye. Well, there you have it. That's uh, a lot of information that we hit a lot of topics. But Michael's just a great guy to talk to. Just a great guy. And and this this partnership thing, I think it's going to work good. There are two parts to it. I might have somebody he he talked about the uh, the good neighbor authority. There's also a stewardship contracting part of this agreement. So maybe we'll hit that later on. And that'll do it for another week on Woods and Water, South Carolina. What a way to end it. Got some. Habitat, man, it, it's it's a year-round deal. You know, you can <laughs> I can sit there in a deer stand. I can sit on the deck. I can ride the tractor, and I can plan, 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 plan. There's always something to do. Get involved. You manage for one thing. You manage for it all if you do it right. As always, make time to get out there. There's a lot of things going on in South Carolina. Take the back roads when you can. That's where the state really comes alive. And don't forget that camera. See you back here next week with more Woods and Water South Carolina. Hi, yes, I'm.